Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 95. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On this episode, we're talking about doubt and deconstruction with Dr. A.J. Swoboda, who is Assistant Professor of Bible Theology and World Christianity at Bushnell University and the author of the book that we're talking about, After Doubt, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It, published by Brazos. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. I have to say, I really love this conversation. I think Dr. Swoboda is just really raw in the way that he addresses these issues of doubt and deconstruction and the way he thinks about it very deeply and personally as an educator, thinking about the sacred experiences that he has with his students, the office hours that he speaks with us about, in which he lays bare some of his own personal struggles so that his students can see that he's wrestling with a lot of the same issues that they are. He provides just a really powerful and helpful example of how to come alongside people who are doubting and deconstructing, and also how to think through your own doubts and deconstructions in wise and helpful ways. Yeah, especially wise ways of deconstructing. I think he gave us a lot of really helpful distinctions to understand how do you go through a process as intense as deconstruction or rethinking of things that maybe you were taught um, and particular beliefs that you grew up with that you are now questioning. And how do you do that in a way that is coming from a posture of wisdom? And it's also coming from a posture of love for God that posture of wisdom and that heart of love really leads us to pursue this task with humility. And I think that's vitally important uh, when, when walking through something as important as this. So I think Dr. Swoboda serves not just to, as a model for a great professor and how to, to help students in the classroom with these things, but I think also how to have that pastoral presence as well as people are wrestling through some very intense uh, experiences and, and questioning some of the beliefs that they've held for a very long time. And here's our conversation with Dr. Sabota. Well, Dr. Sabota, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You know, it's a lot of fun because I think originally our very first blog post, which was actually August of 2011, uh, you left a comment on it. Uh, it was published by Matthew Wilcoxon. I don't know if you remember, it was called uh, Technology uh, and the Loss of Poiesis. Um, and, and it's just kind of fun to now be able to have you on the podcast 10 years later. <laughs> um, that you pay attention to the comments section, that that attunely that that you're that attuned is remarkable to me i just remember i remember that you were around when we first started like engaging with our blog and so it's just kind of fun to finally have you back on and i and i checked and it was actually the very first blog post amazing <laughs> well it, it was an honor back then to join you then it's an honor now to be back well, well, this is really great. And we want to talk about your book, After Doubt. And how about we begin by hearing a little bit about what you're trying to do in that book? Give us a little praise of what it's all about. 
Yeah, thank you for having me and to get to talk about uh, anybody's, you know, when you when you pour your heart and soul into something, to get to talk about it means a lot. Um, yeah, so the, this book, uh, After Doubt, is really the culmination of essentially uh, 20 years of my life of serving what broadly could be described as um, college ages, 18 to 25 year olds. Uh, so for about 10 years, I was a college pastor. For 10 years, I was a church planter in urban Portland, Oregon, and now I'm an undergraduate professor um, uh, at a, a Christian university in Oregon. And my life, so my life has essentially been um, walking with students after they leave their Christian home. And what I've learned along the way is that in general, and I'm, I'm, I do, I'm, I'm speaking in broad strokes here, but in general, um, either students uh, go through such a radical, what we call a deconstruction process that uh, after four years, uh, they end up not identifying as Christians anymore or going to church. And the stats are generally three out of four um, fit in that category. Um, or uh, they double down uh, into kind of a rigid fundamentalism and kind of close off conversations outside of that circle. And what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to offer a third way, uh, side B, as it were, um, of about how we engage in our doubts and our deconstruction in a Jesus-centered uh, way. And really, those two extremes are represented, I think, by uh, tribal progressivism that would say the sign that you have faith is that you've deconstructed. And on the other hand, this tribal conservatism that says, if you're asking questions, then you're probably just about to leave the faith. And I, I think those are really two horrible options. I'm wondering if you could um, just explain to us, uh, we throw out the term deconstruction a lot um, in kind of evangelical cultural conversations. It's different from like a philosophical deconstruction in, in a proper sense. It's not properly like Derridian deconstruction. It's something different. I kind of say it's more attuned to like the hermeneutics of suspicion than anything. Um, but I'm wondering if you could give just a basic definition, like what, what is this deconstruction stuff that we're talking about in, in evangelical circles in particular? Yeah, that word, as you rightly point out, is being used by everyone. It's sort of uh, a really, uh, it's a, you could do a real quick TikTok search and find whole, whole audiences that just deal with deconstruction. It's, it's kind of a big thing now. And, and to be honest with you, whenever I write something, I find about a year later, I have a ton of regrets about what I did. Um, and so I'm in counseling for that. Thank you. Um, but one of the things that I uh, wish I would have attended more to is the difference between deconstruction and doubt, because they are not the same thing. Um, as, as, and I'm not a, a trained philosopher, but I, I, I have swam in the, uh, I have swam in, in, in the philosophy water well enough to know that deconstruction as a term has quite the history. Um, and in, in terms of philosophy, it sort of had, had its heyday in, um, in sort of French postmodern, um, uh, critiques of, you know, traditional cultures and traditional ways of thinking, um, but what we're, what we're talking about here when it comes to theological deconstruction is a little bit different. What, what we're talking about here is we're talking about those moments in our spiritual journeys, in our moments of following Jesus, where we begin to realize that maybe we don't want or can believe something we used to believe. So in essence, it is not the construction of a theological idea. It is the undoing of a theological idea. And why that's different for me than doubt 
specifically when it relates to the New Testament, is it appears to me that doubt in the New Testament tends to be, and the psalmists and, and you know, Ecclesiastes, so on and so, on, so forth, doubt tends to be not something that we proactively do, but it is something that happens to us. So it is, it is the result of an experience or uh, an epiphany or the result of learning something new. Doubt is something that happens to us, whereas deconstruction tends to be a bit more proactive. I am deconstructing my faith. I am undoing something about my theological understanding. So I, I would say one is one tends to be uh, something that happens to us and one tends to be something we actively do. Really helpful distinction. And I'm curious to know, just in your experience with students, what are the motivations for this? What is it that kind of starts people into thinking, maybe I need to rethink some of the, the fundamental things that I've always thought, which is a very scary kind of thing to do. Um, but but what, what's the impetus for that? Marvelous. Um, yeah, let's get into it because this is a, as a, as an undergraduate educator at Christian university, this is, this is day in and day out material from, um, so here's a great example. Uh, I'm teaching an old Testament class right now, uh, intro to the old Testament class. And I have a student in that particular class who was raised, uh, in a particular Christian environment in which the vision of the Bible that they were handed was essentially, uh, our perfectly translated NIV uh, English version of the Bible was written by God and handed to us uh, in perfect form with leather on top and our name printed on the front. And when they take an Old Testament class and they begin to find that the process of the Bible's formation has a lot more human elements than they were ever brought into, um, fully divine and fully human. I mean, I, I'm describing, you know, the process is messy. It was not as easy as we think it was. Here's what happens. They begin to wonder, why wasn't I told this younger? Why was, not, why was I not invited into this conversation at an earlier stage? And unless I'm there to walk them through the process, here's what begins to happen. They start to think, was I lied to? Was I deceived? And then when you start wondering, was I deceived about the Bible? You go, well, what else was I deceived about? And what begins as just a legitimate question, all of a sudden becomes a full-on uh, theological crisis. And essentially what I see happening now um, for many of my students is they are one meme away from a full deconstruction process, largely because um, we were never, often never invited into conversations earlier on about um, things like how the Bible was put together, things like, uh, you know, how do we come to theological conclusions, th things like, like that. We are, we are one YouTube video away from chucking our faith. And so here's the thing. Those questions are really sacred and important questions. The, the problem is not the question. The, the problem is we often haven't had people who have walked us down that road. And we, so it could be that, it could be this, it could be this. Listen, if you're raised in a home in an environment where you are told that if you love God, uh, everything works out really well and then get cancer for the first time at 19 years old, all of a sudden, how do I, was what I was told about God true or, or am I off or is there no God? I mean, another example, uh, and I'm, I know this may be my last one, but when you, when you begin to see how big the world is and how many different ways of thinking about the world and God there are, that can send a young person's faith into the, uh, into a cycle that, that can sometimes be almost impossible to overcome. 
So there's a lot of reasons. Uh, there's a lot of reasons. But at the end of the day, this, the questions are sacred. How we arrive at a response is often more important than the response itself. How do we get there? The, the process. We talked a lot about this when we were doing our apologetic series uh, over the summer, how, at, at least in my personal experience with people that I know um, and growing up in, in a Christian environment, the people who we always thought were going to have crises of faith were going to be people who would, you know, leave and go into a secular context and encounter an atheist, and then they would get sort of swayed or you know, caught up in the appeal of atheism or whatever, and then they'd fall away from their faith. And so the idea was for Christian formation and education of children was to make sure that you have these like very clear ideas. This is, this is true. And this is what things are. And it's this very sort of tight, neat package. Um, and you make sure you stay away from the things that might threaten those things. Yeah. And, um, and then you also kind of equip your, your kids or yourself or whatever with, um, kind of quick fix arguments. Like, you know, when the atheist says this, you can say this or whatever, but then it's when you get out and you actually meet these people, you know, and you're, and you're like, well, you know, that wasn't exactly what was described to me. turns out it wasn't accurate. That causes such a deep, a, a deep crisis because you start questioning these people that your, your foundations, like the grounding of, you know, where you come from and it causes this very deep internal angst. And so, as you said, you start then asking, you know, I'm wondering if what we're seeing now is kind of a product of a, a particular way, particular way of understanding what faith is. And maybe that understanding of faith is something that's actually quite brittle and something that you have to set on a shelf and like not let anything touch it, lest it just crumble. And I wonder if we're finding out that our faith actually is that really brittle thing. And so it just crumbles at, you know, the next meme or whatever, mm -hmm. but it's kind of a product of a much, a much longer and deeper history of, of where we've come from. Oh man, we have, yeah, we have become theological helicopter parents. Um, we, um, we do everything, uh, to protect people from the hard questions. I, I, am struck by what you just said, Amber, in terms of how our apologetics, um, sort of method has been, we, we need to equip, um, young people with the answers that they'll face in the world. And I, I think that's an appropriate level of an apologetic, uh, approach. We need to do that, but we also need to remember that a really important part of apologetics is not handing students answers, but handing them the good questions. That, that actually the people who we get questions from are the ones who are willing to ask those, those who are willing to ask the hard questions in our moment in history are people who have a lot of authority because they're willing to go there and to be, be open to teach our young people, the hard questions. See, that's the thing. There is no, there is no new theological question under the sun, in my opinion, it, it's not an issue of, or I should say, it's not as though these questions haven't been asked. We have 2000 years of rich theological conversation to draw from. Uh, I heard somebody once say that in the Protestant Reformation, um, uh, if, if you look at it as a divorce, the Protestants got the Bible and the Catholics got tradition. And the problem with that is that we have divorced the Bible from 2000 years of rich history and thought that we get to draw from. And when we introduce young people 
to the sacred questions that are very important. We get authority because we're introducing them to the problems. We're, we're, we want you to be so equipped with the questions that when you hear Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins ask a really big question, you have it's not a new question for you. I heard, so somebody said to me uh, at one point, well, so I had heard this story about the University of Arizona <clears throat> had done this, um, had done this, uh, they built this biodome out in the middle of the desert, uh, spent billions of dollars to build this biodome. And they had planted, they'd done this biodome and planted all these trees in the biodome. And after like two years, they, you know, the biodome is completely enclosed and all these trees grew up. And after two years, out of nowhere, completely, inextricably, they all just fell over. And these scientists are trying to, they're freaking out. They're like, what's going on with these trees? And they're looking at the soil, the, the, the water, they're looking at the air, they can't figure it out. All of a sudden, there's a scientist who has this nerd out moment and they figure it out. There's no wind. And when trees don't have wind, they never grow roots. Like the only way a tree grows roots is there has to be wind. When you're an undergraduate educator, that is, that is exactly what we're talking about is students who have never had any wind go into a really windy world and it all just falls over. You don't even, you don't, it's non-wind can push you over, let alone uh, a little bit of wind in a very challenging world. I think our resiliency training for young people, we have got to up the challenge factor <laughs> and make it harder to follow Jesus at a younger age. We need to up the ante, make it harder. I'm not saying it's already hard. We don't need to make it hard. <laughs> we, we just need to not run away from the challenging things. We are not creating theologically resilient kids when we protect them from all the wind. That, that image of resiliency is a really powerful one. And it does, it does represent the challenge that, you know, this all flows downstream. So by the time that we have students, you know, enter into our classrooms, it's really difficult to, to think about the, the wise ways to introduce this information that we need to discuss with our students if they have been inculcated from some of these, you know, tough questions. For example, I remember one time being at a church in Utah and there were these posters in the children's room that said, you know, that the Bible came down to us by manuscripts that were without error, referring to the manuscripts, like the actual transmission of the Bible being without error. And of course, if you know anything about textual criticism, you know that the whole point of textual criticism is to sift through the manuscripts and all of their variants. So it just points to the challenge. that There's a lot of misinformation early on that sets people up potentially for some real devastating realizations that are unnecessary. And so I just think, okay, can we, can we chat about the, the wisdom needed in the classroom? Our students have an orientation. And one of the things that we, we do as instructors is we try to disorientate them a little bit so that we can reorientate them. And, you know, sometimes we talk about hermeneutical baggage that our students, you know, come to the classroom with that we want to kind of help them let go of. That task requires some deafness. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah, you're hitting the nail on the head in terms of, of the, the challenge that we all face, not be it with our students or our family members or ourselves or our children, this balance between um, I think you could, you could almost put it the balance between that which disorients us and that which orients us, this 
like coming back to the truths that we know to be true and yet being willing to um, challenge some of our presuppositions or concepts that we definitely know to not be um, the, mo the, the most, the most uh, uh, fruitful. I, yeah, I'll let myself out here in terms of my own, um, my own pedagogical uh, philosophy. I really believe um, that I am called as a theologian and a teacher, first and foremost, I am called to follow Jesus myself. Um, and what that means is that I need to come to the classroom with this, the understanding that I play a role in young people's formation to the way of Jesus. And when I stand in front of the classroom and I talk about the hard questions and I vulnerably tell my students that I am struggling through this myself, I lose sleep over this stuff as well. All of a sudden, it changes the conversation for them to know you are permitted to wrestle and struggle and still be on the way of Jesus. So many people do not have a model of someone who is wrestling with God and yet loves God. <laughs> when the very name for God's people in the Old Testament, Israel, wrestles with God, it's our identity. Our identity is as a people who are struggling to follow God. I free people from guilt and shame when I simultaneously talk about the goodness and mercy and love of Christ and my struggle to believe. It, it paves a different path. That I did a thing a couple years ago where I wrote down, somebody had invited me to do this, I wrote down all of my theological heroes. So on a piece of paper, I wrote down all the people who have had the deepest impact on my life. C.S. Lewis, Henry Nouwen, Flannery O'Connor, and I could list, list off a couple more. But I looked at them all and I asked the question, what do all these people have in common? And it dawned on me, all of them were people who in their personal real life had some really difficult struggle that they never got over. Henry Nouwen wrestled with his sexuality his entire adult life and remained celibate and crucified his celibate, his, his sexual desires for the sake of the gospel. C.S. Lewis lived endless bouts of depression. And finally, when he gets married, his wife dies almost immediately. Flannery O'Connor dies of lupus at something like 35 years old, having written just a few books, and she was considered the future of Southern novelists. And all of these people have one thing in common. They all had thorns in their side. And the people who have had the greatest impact on my faith journey are, are not people who got everything they wanted. They are people who had thorns in their side. And I am, a, as a teacher, I, I serve my students with my thorn. My thorns are sacred and they're important. And I think I pave a path forward when they see that their Bible professor loses sleep over this stuff too. And he still loves God with all his heart. I love that, that idea of being the teacher who stands up and, and in many ways is walking forward um, and asking students to even follow you as you follow Christ, right? But you're walking forward with the thorns, like you're walking forward, picking up your cross and you, you have the vulnerability to let them see that a little bit. Um, because I think so often professors think, okay, I need to have 
everything put together. I need to be able to give students all the right answers. And we have a very triumphalistic view, like an over-realized eschatology when it comes to our faith and what it means to walk by faith, um, that we can somehow get all four corners of our system figured out and, you know, all the, all the answers solidified. And people who are mature in their faith have that, right? Whereas this idea of wrestling, like you were talking about, there's a particular posture of brokenness and humility and openness that comes with wrestling that I think is different from the posture of skepticism, right? Like the, the posture of, of skepticism, kind of the Cartesian doubt, right? Like I can't, I will not believe this unless it is irrefutable. And I have some, this has somehow met my expectation for absolute certainty. Otherwise I will not permit myself to believe this. And it's actually a very, um, there's a lot of hubris in that. There's a lot of, all right, you got to prove it to me. And I have this very high impossible epistemic standard and I won't budge unless it can meet that standard. And that's very different from being on your knees before a God that you cannot understand or contain and say, you, you got to help my unbelief because I, I can't make sense of this, you know? Well, hundred percent. That, that's it. The, the, the difference, Amber, but the difference between asking honest questions and questions that are intended to trap um, in the new Testament, very important distinction. Um, there was a book written years ago by a German scholar named Conrad Gempf called Jesus asked. He's at London school of theology where I do a little teaching. He was a, uh, he's a new Testament scholar, wrote a book about all the questions in the new Testament. Um, Jesus, uh, asks in the new Testament, he asks 307 questions. So he, he asks a lot of questions and he is asked 183 questions and he only answers and of those 183, he only answers three of the questions. And when you look at all the questions in the New Testament that Jesus has asked, there is always a difference between questions that Jesus seems to respond favorably to and questions where he seems to respond with a question. And the difference between the two, the New Testament always says that they asked because they wanted to trap Jesus, or they asked because they really wanted to know. And there is a fundamental difference. I love your description of a, of a, of a good question and a skeptical question. The Bible can handle our questions, but skepticism will destroy the Bible. And, and what I mean by that is our, the posture of our question. Do we come with a question of open-handedness or do we come squinting, pointing our fingers? Th those are two different. The posture of the question is a game changer. Um, and we all know, we've seen it. The, the minute a honest question turns into a skeptical question where we're not really wanting to know, uh, we are hungry to trap. We are hungry to save face. We don't want to deal with, I mean, that's what Pilate says. What is truth? And he asks it and then immediately steps away and goes to the crowd, which is literally what social media does to us. <laughs> we have great questions for Jesus. We don't have time to sit around and ask what he has to say. We just turn to the crowd. So we, we have traded in actually sitting at the feet of Christ and listening to his heart. And we've replaced it with TikTok. So we don't have time for Jesus to respond to us because we're we're too busy uh, we're too busy laughing at all, all, all of our memes. Um, so, but but your point, the, we our questions. It is striking, right? The last thing Jesus says in Mark's gospel is, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Even Jesus dies with a question on his lips. Even Jesus dies having an unanswered question. I mean, it, I follow that guy. 
there are going to be questions I'm going to die with that I will not have answers to because God refuses to allow me to be omnipotent and omniscient. There are some things I'm just not allowed to know. This conversation about the posture of our doubts uh, reminds me of what the poet John Donne, no relation, uh, said about doubting wisely. And I wonder if you might uh, speak to that that posture of doubt. Yeah, Do you, is are you actually not related to him? You were kid. You were you were being serious. I'm being silly. Yeah, I'm not related to him. It's hilarious. <laughs> that would be like me saying there's a philosopher named AJ Swoboda. I'm not related to him, but yeah, doubting wisely. Well, it is striking that, um, to me, the, the wisdom literature tradition in the Old Testament, of which we have a number of, you know, key, key documents and things like Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and Psalms, um, our wisdom literature is full of questions. So it, it is not as though, it is not as though, I mean, you read Ecclesiastes. This is, this is an author who is no doubt trying to figure out what up and down is, uh, what is what. All is vanity, all is all is Havel, all is vapor. Um, and that's wisdom literature. So what is that? What is that? You know, I uh, yeah, Carl Bart was he gets gets in trouble all the time, but uh, Bart has a line that to me, uh, I think exemplifies um, the spirit of what what we're talking about here. Bart was very critical of forms of theology that were done merely to serve academia. Um, I think if Bart was in our world today, he would, he would say that one of the dumbest ideas is the idea of writing theology for the sake of tenure. I think he would be like, it's the dumbest thing in the world. Theology is not for tenure. Um, and Bart was well known for saying that theology that's not in service of the church is our highest form of idolatry. And I mean, if you're, you're asking me as a Christian and a churchman with the difference, I think the difference between um, what uh, Helmut Tilke called diabolical theology or theology of love. And the difference is this, are we wrestling with doubt because we want to love people and love God? Or are we doing it because we want tenure? Or are we doing it because we really just want to be retweeted? The motivation for our questions and our doubt, the motivation, the why um, is what changes. It, it changes, I think, the outcome of what it's about. And so, when I say there are questions about the Bible that I really lose sleep over, I'm not doing that to be scandalous or be retweeted. I'm, I'm doing it because I actually love God enough to know and believe that I want to know him. And I don't know. I think the motivation of why we doubt and struggle makes a big difference. And the truth is there are forms of deconstruction that are really good. And there are forms that are really, really, really evil and bad. And when I'm sitting with a student who was handed a vision of theology that says that if I have a female student who has, was taught as a kid that women are footnotes in the story of the kingdom of God, that theology needs to be deconstructed. That, and, and, and if that student is willing to walk through it and read the Bible and wrestle with scripture, wrestle with theology, that, that friends, Bad ideas should be deconstructed. There is a good form of, of deconstruction. There is also a very dark form and evil form of deconstruction, which is people who are essentially undoing the Christian faith, not because they love God, but because really they just want to sleep with who they want to sleep with. And I think the difference between those two is your motivation. Are you doing it because you love or are you doing it because you just want to see it all burn? Motivation matters. 
why we do what we do matters. Yeah. And I think the how is super important too. Like even, even more than the, the what, like the how, and I, and I love that, how to doubt wisely. And what I, what I'm thinking about is how scripture talks about the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom. And so again, it's turning back to that posture of this brokenness and openness to the Lord, um, as opposed to the kind of the, the skeptical, suspicious kind of, you know, you got, you got to answer my question, sort of like Job, you know, and then God comes to him and says, where were you before the foundations of the earth were laid? And he just lays him open, you know, um, and, and that posture puts us in that, that puts us in the posture to actually receive from God um, in, in a way that kind of the arrogance of I'm not going to believe unless does. So I, I love that distinction and thinking about deconstruction and, and doubt in terms of like, what is, how do we walk through it in wisdom? What's the how of this and how can it be wise? And one thing that I really appreciate about uh, your book, looking through it and what I think that you're trying to do with it is it's very pastoral in the sense that it's walking people through a process. And I think that there are a lot of people who come with a lot of hurts. I mean, it might be like, oh, I just want to sleep with who I want to sleep with. It might be, I have been crushed by all sorts of spiritual abuse and all kinds of things that I've encountered and uh, in the church. And I got to know what to do with this because it's killing me, you know? So, so whatever it is that you're, you're bringing to the table, you have a lot that's going on. And I, I think that what I would love to see more of is walking people through that process in a healthy way, not to stop it, not to contain it, quote unquote, but just to help. Like, how do we walk through this wisely um, in maintaining that posture? And so I'm wondering, what are some of the things that you do uh, to, to kind of help people in that? Yeah, um, just a comment, and I wanted to mention, give a give a shout out to uh, a, a, a call a friend of mine who teaches at uh, Seattle Pacific University, Daniel Costello, who wrote a, a really excellent. Uh, he's a pneumatologist and theologian who wrote an excellent article entitled "The Fear of the Lord as Theological Methodology." And the whole point of the whole the whole point of the article is our method is less how we do theology and more about the posture of our heart as in doing theology. And I, I just just as a shout out, it's an excellent little book. Yeah. So people who are walking through deconstruction. When they, I'm sitting in my office here and I have my, I have a couch in my office. I think I'm the only faculty member here who has a couch. They're all very jealous of me. They walk by and, and drool that I have a couch because I have a lot of office hours and I view a big part of my life as sitting with my students. And when I sit with my students, it is a very common experience to have a student come into my office who describes the reasons and rationales why they're walking through this deconstruction experience. And what I have learned time and again, that one of the most important things I can do in those moments, when they are pouring out their questions, their concerns, their challenges, all the things that they're hurt by, all the things in the church that they struggle with, when they are done talking, my immediate response, there's like this, I don't know where I got it. I think I got it in Bible college or somewhere, but my immediate response is to want to get totally apologetic on them and send them, you know, a Preston Sprinkle video clip, or you need to read this book by this person, or you need to go listen to this, you know, uh, this uh, John Polkinghorne video on why physics, whatever, is I want to get all apologetics and solve the issue. And I had to learn the hard way that when a student is doing that in my office, I, I should not assume that what they're looking for is an answer. And that the first thing I should do when they're done pouring their heart and their soul out is I need to look them in the eyes and I need to say, first of all, I need to say thank you for offering me the sacredness of your story. And then secondly, 
and I will always say this, and it it's almost magic. I, I hate offering magic to your audience, but it's almost magic. When I say this phrase, how are you inviting me to respond? And that simple phrase has changed my office hours because I, at that moment, see, there are times that a student doesn't want an answer. They need some ears. And when, when somebody pours their heart out and all of a sudden I get all apologetics on them, that's not what they're looking for. They're not looking at it always. They're not always looking for the answers. Sometimes they do want the answers. But what I need to do is I need to practice what I call spiritual consent. And spiritual consent is simply the practice of not going somewhere if I'm not invited to go. Because for people in deconstruction, when you break the door down without knocking, when you break the door down and just bust in and you give all the answers that you think, it ends up pushing people further away. But when I'm invited in, I'm struck that Jesus is described as standing at the door and knocking. He doesn't bust in. And to me, that represents a posture of ministry that I can learn from. I don't bust in. I gently knock. And if the door is open, I come in. And if not, I need to be at peace. Practicing spiritual consent, not going where we're not invited to go for people in deconstruction is very important. The, you would be amazed. The number of young people who come into my office who shared their struggle and their concern with their parent or their pastor or somebody else, and they were just given a YouTube clip. And they, and they will say to me something along the lines of, they gave me a clip. I didn't want a clip. So Kara Powell at Fuller, she says, you know, in our world, we got to remember people can download, uh, people can download a YouTube video, but they can't download a friend and you can't download a mentor. You can't download somebody who's willing to sit with you. My point, Amber, um, in our moment in history, um, pastors desperately, leaders, teachers desperately need to practice the ministry of the ear. I love what you said about having peace about whatever it is that they, you know, wherever they are or whatever it is that they're inviting you into. Because I think that people in ministry or professors or pastors can so often feel this, um, you know, this weight of responsibility that you see someone who's doubting something or who's struggling with something and you, you want to fix it, right? Like you want to give them the answers. You want them to be able to go away. Fine. Um, as opposed to releasing them into God's hands, like knowing that he's got them and he's walking them through a process. Um, and that we don't have to have this kind of sense of control because sometimes that sense of control can be the very thing that then leads us to create the kinds of brittle faith that people then have to deconstruct. Yes. And to add to that, we shouldn't, we also shouldn't think that our job as leaders is to just burden people with oppressive questions. That's also not our job. We've got to remember these are sheep. They're not camels. It's not their job to carry our crap for us. So I'm not, I'm not saying that we just burden people with new questions all the time. There's a gentle, kind, generous, and loving way to do this. That, you, you, that word peace that you just said there, I feel it is a really important part. Like it, j, 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 we would, that we do this work like lambs, like gentle lambs, not utilizing our power to oppress people with questions they're not asking and not utilizing forms to evade the questions 
We're gentle like lambs. We worship the Lamb of God who is at center of the throne. Gentle. I've been around lambs. They're freaking gentle. The gentleness matters. And never, I've just learned this as a teacher, shame never teaches. So if people are having to learn from me and shame is used to teach them, I have failed. Meaning if people learn from me and they walk away feeling bad that they didn't know that thing, then I didn't do it to serve them. I did it to serve my own ego. And for too many of us as teachers, I'll say this as myself, we love to teach because we love to look smart. And the calling of a teacher is not to get up and look smart. It is to serve people's souls, minds, and bodies. And to, it's, it is not an act of serving our ego. It is, it is an act. I, I want to look smart. Who doesn't want to look smart? I want to quote all the people and make it look like I know my Greek and Hebrew. I want it. But that's my, not my calling. I'm a lamb who is called to gently serve these young people who God has put in my, in, in my care. Can I ask another question about unwise forms of deconstruction? Um, <laughs> one of the things, a, a trend that I've noticed in, in this sort of movement um, is that, okay, so if deconstruction is this practice of kind of looking beneath the surface and identifying like where was, where's the, the fraud in the faith or where is the deception in the devotion? Um, where have we been led to think things that were actually manipulative? Like those sorts of questions, which are super important, vital, right? Um, and, and I think should be welcomed because I, I really believe that critique of the of religion, if done wisely with that posture of humility can actually lead to better religion. And I don't think we should shy away from our quote unquote house of cards being collapsed, right? Because as C.S. Lewis says, like it was a house of cards anyway, God knew it. It was I who didn't, you know? So I, I love that. But one thing that I, I think about in, in helping to walk people through this kind of thing is sometimes we can take the posture of suspicion, the gaze of suspicion, and kind of look subcutaneously at all these hidden things or whatever. But we forget about the fact that fraudulent faith and deceptive devotion also festers inside of us. And so we have that gaze of suspicion that can be turned outside, like, you know, burn this down, expose this. And there can be, for some people, this would be the difference between wise and unwise deconstruction, um, kind of a neglect of recognizing that true deconstruction involves maybe even first or foremost laying myself bare and calling myself into question. Um, how, how has my faith been somehow used for my own self-interest? Um, and that, that's something that I, I see a lot less. We're kind of quick to call other people to repent, but I don't, I still don't see a collective just brokenness and repentance, you know? Um, so I'm wondering what you think about that. And if you have advice on, on how to walk through that in a wise way. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to parrot a little bit of, uh, some, some, uh, an article that I was turned on to by Miroslav Wolf and Matthew Krosman in their book, um, on theology that they wrote a couple of years ago. Um, there was an article written by uh, a couple of years ago. I think it was in it was in 2017, or it was a chapter in a book um, by a, a scholar by the name of Simon During. He he he's a he's a historian who studies. He's a philosopher, a historian of philosophy, and he wrote an article in a book called Critique and Post Critique. The uh, and the title of the chapter was the 18th Century Origin of Critique, and it's a it's a history of critique. And here's what he found. He said, where in the world does this idea of self-critique come from? The idea of self-critique is directly 
drawn from the prophetic literature of the Old Testament and Jesus. The idea, see, everything in, we would assume critique is always for other people, but self-critique is the prophetic tradition and the Jesus tradition. You know, don't judge the other without looking in your own eyes. The prophet looking at God's people and critiquing the religion of its moment. The truth is, if, if somebody is struggling with the deception of religion, Christianity is a really good option because your God spends a lot of time critiquing religion as well. The Bible is a very critique. It, it offers a very harsh critique of false religion. Here's what has happened. We now do self-critique, but we don't do it with any grace. We've basically done, we now do, we, are, we have stolen from Jesus and the prophetic tradition, self-critique, but we laid behind the grace and the mercy. Critique is important, but critique without mercy is the road of death. And what I, I, have to, I have to embody in my own life is wherever I'm going to critique someone else, I better be ready to critique myself. And when I actually do that work, it's really humbling. I think the Jesus tradition and the prophetic tradition invites us to simultaneously critique and introspectively see our own sin. And that, that's unique. <laughs> that's unique because in tribalism of our moment in history, all we can do is now lob critiques towards the other tribe. And that tribalism is killing America. It's killing the world. We need a tribe who has the willingness to look at their own tribe and say, this is where we botched it. Let's, rep let's repent. And there's grace. So I think wise critique, wise questions are willing to take them inwardly as much as they're willing to take them outwardly. Well, Dr. Sabota, thank you so much for this powerful conversation. Just appreciate how real and, and raw you've been in, in answering these questions and thinking about doubt and deconstruction with us. Just really appreciate having you on today. Yes, what a joy. Thank you for inviting me on. And um, I will do my best to uh, refresh a new comment now in 2021 on the blog so that the last one is not from 2001. <laughs> that wasn't the last one. That was just the first the one. The first one, forgive me. <laughs> well, thanks again. Thank you.